Jay Sigurd here, Starting Point Podcast. We're talking science, faith, and a whole lot more. Buckle up, because it's go time. Jay Sigurd here. Thanks for joining me on today's broadcast. We are headed into part four of intelligent design. Again, it's a subtopic of the whole creation evolution discussion, which we've been in for quite a while. I'm not sure how many subparts there will be to intelligent design, but we will find out. Again, before we get any further, make sure you subscribe to these podcasts so you can be alerted when the new ones come out. And then also uh, you help us reach a much, much greater audience by leaving, especially a five-star review if you think it's appropriate, that is very beneficial to us. So we appreciate that. So what can you expect today? Well, we'll actually finally get into some specific examples of intelligent design. It's actually going to happen for real today. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. You're, you're too kind. Just too kind. Thanks for that. Uh, we'll get into it. But the reason we've done so much prep up until this point is if I was going to do a podcast on the Civil War, and I started out in episode one saying something like, you know, in May of 1862, General Lee was moving his troops into Virginia. And you might think, well, wait, wait a minute, what what's going on? Who Who's General Lee? Why did he have troops? Why, why were they going into Virginia? Well, you'd need the backdrop of what led to the Civil War to begin with before you get into the specifics of individual battles. So that's why it's important to go over the things that we did prior to looking at actual examples. Um, again, brief review. We've already talked about a definition of intelligent design and its history. We talked about the differences between intelligent design and creation evolution debate. Um, and now we're going to be getting into some of these examples. Last episode, we did talk about the concept of the elephant in the living room. Again, the general idea is you're over at someone's house and there's an elephant in the living room and no one's paying any attention to it it's like it's not even there and you're like hello doesn't doesn't anyone see this elephant no one's talking about it but you can't help but notice it and it's somewhat similar with the whole concept of intelligent design it seems so obvious but no one's talking about it not in the secular realm because they're not really allowed to that's not an option for them to say that things were designed. So anyway, go back and listen to the previous episode if you want to hear more about that. I also brought up some examples of how they try to push back against the idea of intelligent design, something called falsifiability. I'm not going to repeat it here. Also, they say, well, you can't know who the designer is by looking at the evidence of design, which is true. You can look at and DNA and all these other things and see that, wow, there's great evidence of design, but it wouldn't tell you who the designer was, but that doesn't mean there's not evidence for design. So it's not a good argument. Also, they claim that intelligent design destroys the basis for doing science. That's not true at all. We covered that last time. And then they also say it's the God of the gaps explanation, meaning anytime we can't understand something or it seems complex, we'll, we'll just say God did that. That's not what intelligent design is. Intelligent design simply focuses on reasoning to the most logical inference. So, I also mentioned that um, you have to know what you're looking for in order to claim that design doesn't exist. You have to have some criteria for that. We talked about that a little bit. 
I mentioned something called irreducible complexity, a term coined by Dr. Michael Behe from Lehigh University. And he had an example of a mousetrap that has five parts to it. And I'm not going to repeat the whole thing, but if you took one of the five parts away of a mousetrap, how well does it work? It does not work four-fifths as well. It doesn't work at all. You need all five parts at the same time in the right place working together for it to function so you cannot develop it slowly over time gaining a new piece every once in a while because it can't carry out its function until all the pieces are there so it can't survive. So that's a general concept, a a simple analogy. But now we're going to get into some new stuff and some actual examples of design in nature, intelligent design, And it's kind of interesting when you can use someone's own words against them. Uh, A political example can be kind of entertaining. I've seen many Senate hearings where a senator asks a certain politician whether or not they believe a certain statement to be true. And then the politician attempts to deny it, but then the senator happens to read a letter that was written by that politician and asks them if they did indeed write the letter, which is actually signed by them as well. And then the politician squirms and says, well, um, uh, Senator, thank you for uh, your question. Um, I I remember writing something, but I don't quite uh, recall the details. I, I would have to look at the letter to know the context and then the senator often says, I, I just read the entire letter. You have the context of that letter. Did you write that? You know, well, against Senator, I'd, I, I'd have to, you know, to see the letter. And then sometimes the senator says, okay, independent of that letter, would you agree with those statements right now, today? Would you agree with those statements in that letter? Uh, senator, um, thank you again for your question. Uh, like I said, I... I I don't remember the details of the letter. I would have I would have to see it again to understand the context. And it's like they're just stalling and they're trying to deny that they made a claim and they don't want to admit to it at this point. So using someone's own words against them can be very powerful. Well, we're going to take a look at some powerful words here to see if that helps us establish some criteria for determining whether something was designed or if it just happened through undirected processes of nature. We're going to use words of Charles Darwin in The Origin of the Species. He said this, quote, If it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed, which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down, unquote. What was he saying? Well, He was saying that if we ever discover something that is so complex and you have all these interworking parts and that it couldn't have developed one part at a time over thousands or millions of years, then his theory, Darwinian evolution, would absolutely break down. That's his statement. So he gave us some criteria. So we could use that criteria today to see, are we discovering anything in nature that is so complex, all these interworking parts, that you couldn't develop one piece at a time because it won't work unless you have all the pieces. Well, we found many, many examples, and we're going to go over one right now. And it has to do with the bacterial flagellum. And I 
hold your enthusiasm there. I know you're really excited. Everyone's wanted to know about that bacterial flagellum, but it's a pretty cool example of something that's unbelievably well-designed. So we're talking about bacteria. The flagellum is a little whip tail. Um, a lot of research has been done, especially by Dr. Michael Behe, who coined the term irreducible complexity and many others as well. But some bacteria, they move around by use of a whip-like tail called a flagellum. The tail spins around driven by what is nothing less than a miniature motor, a very, very small motor. The motor in my car is like about two and, two and a half feet wide and weighs over 400 pounds. The flagellar motor is only 45 billionths of a meter wide. That's billions with a B, 45 billionths of a meter wide. This means you could fit 2,000 across the width of a human hair. You could fit a million of these motors in a single grain of sand. These things are miniaturized beyond belief. Um, this motor, like the motor in my car, it has gears, a rotor, an axle, drive shaft, bushings, a universal joint, and adapter rings. You, you got to look it up someday. Look up the bacterial flagellum, F-L-A-G-E-L-L-U-M, bacterial flagellum. There's a lot of videos on YouTube where you can watch this thing operate, and it's just, it's fascinating. It looks just like a motor, but we're taught that it's, it's just, it just happened by accident. Particles banging together over time produce that thing. This thing can move, this, the flagellum tail can move the bacteria 20 body lengths per second, and it's in water or fluid. Now, that might not seem that impressive, but let's think about that. 20 body lengths per second. Let's um, bolster that up to a human scale. Michael Phelps, Olympic uh, swimming champion, he's reached a maximum speed of 6 miles per hour. That's pretty impressive to swim that fast in water. Well, compared to the back bacterial flagellum, that's kind of nothing. Um, the bacterial flagellum would have an equivalent speed of 82 miles per hour. That's six body lengths. If you have six Michael Phelps lengths per second, that would be 82 miles per hour. So this thing can really go fast. Uh, there are over 50 genes involved just in the program that is used to build these nanomotors. And here are the, a few of the features that we see in this motor. It is a water-cooled rotary engine. It has self-assembly and repair. <laughs> Let's stop here for a second. It builds itself. Can you think of any other motors that we use that actually make themselves? And can you think of any motors that we use today that repair themselves? <laughs> I got some good friends. Hey, Jim and Cindy. They have their own auto repair shop. They would be out of business if motors repaired themselves, but they don't, so they'll have a business for a long time until they want to retire. But these things, a bacterial flagellum motor, it builds itself and repairs itself. There's a hook-shaped universal joint, and that consists of about 120 moving parts, which are each highly specialized proteins. It moves around by proton motive force, uh, normally electrons are flowing. This thing has protons flowing. It has forward and reverse gears. It has operating speeds of up to 100,000 RPM, revolutions per minute. 
typical car on a highway, the engine's revving about 15 to 2,000, 1,500 to 2,000 RPM, maybe up to 6,000. If you really rev the engine up, you don't want to operate very long at that high speed. But normally, 1,500 to about 2,000 RPM. Well, the bacterial flagellum is going 100,000 RPM. That's over 1,600 rotations per second. <laughs> and it has direction reversing capability within a quarter of a turn. That is 15 100 thousandths of a second. That's how quickly it can turn and go the other direction when it's going 100,000 RPM. Can you think of any engines today that can do anything close to that? It also has a hardwire signal transduction system with short-term memory. Pretty complex. I'll just keep this one brief. The memory has to do with it knows if the direction it's going in is helping or hindering it finding food. So it can remember those directions short-term. And it's almost 100% efficient. The engine in my car is only about 35 to maybe 40% efficient. That's not too bad for what we make. This thing's almost... 100% efficient. And there are dozens of proteins necessary to build the flagellar motor, and you can't build it one piece at a time through undirected forces of nature. It's not going to work that way. Here's just one other detail, the hook protein. So when it's coming out of the back of the bacteria, like a little vitamin capsule, and then you got the tail going out, spinning around, moving this thing around, the hook portion that is connected to the tail, um, it connects with the flagellar tail. This thing is 55 nanometers long, super, super short, but it's just the right length. If it were too long or too short, the bacteria couldn't move as it needs to, to survive. And the hook proteins are exported and sent out to build a hook. So when they're created, they have to go out and get in the right place to build this hook. And then there's something called FLHB, autocatalytic cleavage, which you're all familiar with that, obviously. But this thing, very complex, it slows down the export of these proteins that construct this hook because you got to slow them down and then stop them. You don't want to make too many or it's too long and it won't work well. Well, there's also an FLIK molecule. These things are exported to go out and measure the hook length. So they're sent out. Their moms probably say, make sure you have clean underwear on in case you get in an accident while you're gone, all that. So they're sent out to measure the hook. And then they obviously has to have feedback to say, okay, it's long enough now. Slow this thing down and stop it. So the export stops when proper length is achieved. That's a very complex subsystem in and of itself. How did this thing survive before that developed? Well, there's so much more to this, but let's jump right into... Uh, arguments against this, why this is not, you know, evidence for design, and this, this just could happen in nature on its own, undirected forces. One of the arguments they try to use is called co-option. They co-opt parts from somewhere else to build this thing. So what they say is all these complex parts, they're found somewhere else in nature, and they just so happen to come together to build this bacterial flagellar motor. <laughs> that is a stretch. But worse than that, only a few of these proteins actually exist somewhere else. Most of them are unique to this motor. So they're not being brought in from some other pre-existing source that had some other use. They're novel. They're new. So that doesn't cut it. Also, you would still need a, quote, foreman 
and instructions, even if all the parts were out there, which they're not, even if they were all out there, you would need something acting as a foreman to bring them in, in the right place, in the right time, using instructions to know where they should go. And these instructions themselves, they would probably have to be very, very highly complex and probably irreducibly complex themselves, where if you take part of the instructions out, you can't complete this portion. So it just keeps getting more and more complex the more you look at it. And beyond all that, even if all those parts came together on their own for no reason, no form and no instructions, they just they existed somewhere else, which they don't, um, and came together, you would have one flagellar motor. You need to get all these changes and the instructions into the DNA so when the bacteria reproduces itself, it has instructions to make the motor again. You can't just hope that it gets lucky again and all these parts, which don't actually exist, come together to build the motor. You only get one motor by co-option. So that is a huge, massive problem. Another argument they try to say, the secular scientists against this being designed, was they say it evolved from something called the type 3 secretory system. Again, I'll skip the details on that, but they've seen something else in nature that is simpler, that has a function. And so they say, see this simpler thing evolved into the bacterial flagellar motor. Well, that doesn't cut it either because it doesn't actually provide a step-by-step solution to go from the simpler thing they've seen all the way on up into the full-blown flagellar motor. And it doesn't answer the challenge of the fact that the flagellar motor cannot perform its functions in the intermediate stages as it's going from this simpler thing to the end game. It, it won't function unless it has every single function. It is irreducibly complex. And the actual evidence in science shows that this simpler thing, the type 3 secretory system, is likely a degraded version of the bacterial flagellum. Like the flagellum was designed to do what it does, and it has degraded over time into this simpler thing that can have some function, but it can't provide the function as a motor anymore. And it has to do with the, the genetic load, the uh, mutational load that's in these things. I'll skip that for now, but strong evidence that it's just the reverse. It's not that the simpler one evolved into the more complex one, is that the more complex one has degraded into the simpler one. There was a team of evolutionary scientists investigating this flagellum, and they said this, quote, For evolutionary biologists, the flagellum is an enduring mystery. This molecular machine consists of many different parts that are all essential for the flagellum to work. How can gradual Darwinian evolution build such a structure if not by inventing all necessary parts at once, unquote? So they're saying this thing doesn't work in intermediate stages, so how could this possibly be here unless somehow they were all invented all at the same time in the right place, working together, which is a design thing. No one thinks that that could just happen in nature out of nowhere for no reason. They have to build things slowly over time. So that doesn't cut it. But it doesn't stop others from just glossing over the whole thing. And this is from ABC Science. They said, quote, The complexity of nature's most impressive swimmers leads some to mistakenly believe it was designed, unquote. 
why would they draw the conclusion it was designed? Because it's so unbelievably complex and there's no answer for how it could develop through undirected forces of nature over millions of years. It's just screaming design. You think it's a mistake for them to believe it was designed because you don't like that conclusion. You don't have science against that conclusion. You just don't care for that worldview which limits your conclusions. So that was just one example. We're going to move very quickly into a second example. We'll only have time for two examples in this particular podcast, but we'll have more in the next one. We're going to take a look at a fun one here, the woodpecker. This is something you can relate to more because you've seen woodpeckers outside. They're kind of fun to watch, whereas the bacterial flagellum, you've probably never heard of that before. We're just going to take a look at woodpeckers and see how amazing they are and is even kind of funny. There are about 240 species of woodpeckers out there. We're going to look at some of their general features, but this comes from an evolutionary source, scienceofbirds.com, and this is what they said. Quote, Millions of years ago, the ancestor of all woodpeckers figured out how to access a rich and mostly untapped resource, juicy and nutritious bugs burrowing around in wood. Natural selection favored individual birds that were better at digging into wood and capturing prey. And so the woodpecker was born, and the world has never been the same. The earliest woodpeckers could drill into wood to find bugs, but they didn't have strong enough skulls to excavate their own nests. And they couldn't climb up trees. And the next step, they developed reinforced tougher skulls and bills, That allowed them to hollow out their nests. In the last steps, their toes moved into the modern arrangement and their tail feathers got stiffer. With strong, grippy feet and a rigid tail, they developed a support structure that allows for tree-climbing shenanigans, unquote. (laughs) And later in the article, they said this, quote, without these adaptations, it would be at serious risk of getting concussions, unquote. Yeah, I'd say so. It wouldn't even be able to survive. But it just, it did this, and then it did that. And wait a minute, how did it survive along the way before it could do that? So there's just a lot of storytelling without anything logical behind it. Certainly no genetics. So a number of special features that woodpeckers have. And we'll look at these pretty quickly here. It has special claws, tail, beak, brain, skull, and tongue. So we would need to have evidence that the woodpecker could develop these features by small, undirected genetic changes over long periods of time. Because no evolutionists think they just popped into existence out of nowhere all at the same time. So it just has to develop when a regular bird is reproducing and copying its DNA and then making some copying errors, the mutations. And those copying errors will lead to these small, undirected genetic changes and Natural selection is our superhero and just keeps those good ones and gets rid of those pesky bad ones. And then that's how you develop a woodpecker over hundreds of thousands or millions of years. You need evidence that it could do that. And then you would actually need evidence that it did do that, including seeing intermediate forms in the fossil record of all these stages, which aren't there. But then they just say, well, you know, those... Those weren't as successful, so they didn't really get preserved in the fossil record. Well, isn't that convenient? Your lack of evidence is uh, evidence that it actually happened. So let's look at the first feature here, the claws. Most birds, 
have three toes out front and one facing back. The woodpecker, Woody, <laughs> has two front and two back. That works really well to allow him to climb up and down on a tree vertically, and he can even run around the outside. It's so fun to watch these woodpeckers run around the outside of a tree. They can even climb and hang upside down because of these special claws, which just happened by accident because some previous bird made mistakes in its DNA when it copied it, and those mutations helped it have the right configuration for its feet. Then the tail. The tail is very strong tail muscles and feathers for bracing itself firmly against a tree. It's going to have to do that because it's going to be pecking at this tree really hard, and if it can't brace itself, it will fall off the tree. So that has to also evolve through undirected processes. And again, how did it survive before it had that? Well, we just make up stories that somehow it survived a certain way and got better and better and better. And then the beak also needs to evolve properly. It has to be able to last being straight and functional for 10 years. Uh, that's over 10 million strikes without being replaced or sharpened. That's a pretty special beak. How did it last along the way? Well, it just got lucky and developed that over time and somehow survived in the meantime. But one of the most interesting features is its brain and its skull. Now, when the astronauts went to the moon, um, they experienced three G's. That's three times the force of gravity. When the rocket's lifting off, normally one G, that's 9.8 meters per second square of gravity pulling you to the earth. Um, so a 200 pound person, if they were in a rocket going to the moon and experienced three G, that's three times the force of gravity. Well, the normal force of gravity is pulling them down. So they experience a weight of 200 pounds. Three G would be 600 pounds. When they're in that rocket, they feel like they weigh 600 pounds, pretty heavy. Well, the woodpecker, when it's pecking the tree, doesn't experience three Gs. It experiences 1,200 to 1,400 Gs. That 200-pound person would feel like they weighed 140 tons. That's 280,000 pounds. And the woodpecker can withstand that. A sudden experience of 50 Gs would detach most of our organs inside, but the woodpecker is operating at 1,200 to 1,400 Gs. They think some woodpeckers might be able to tolerate impact forces of up to 6,000 Gs. That's unbelievable. And it pecks the tree at 18 to 22 times per second. That is rapid fire. And it takes less than a millisecond to go from full speed to stop. People have jokingly said, you know, falling out of an airplane uh, really doesn't hurt you. It's a sudden stop at the end. I'm not sharing that to make you laugh. I don't think that joke is all that funny, but it's pretty true. It is the stop that gets you, the sudden stop because of the force that you're experiencing. What's interesting is there's quite a bit of impact with the woodpecker, but because its brain is smaller, the mass is much less, and there's a, a cubed factor uh, for the, the diameter of the brain for every um, certain distance. It's reduced. The mass is reduced by the cube of that distance, so it, the, the mass goes way down when the, when the volume goes down. Uh, and that lessens the impact because you probably heard of the formula F equals MA. That's force equals mass times acceleration. Well, this acceleration, or actually deceleration, when the 
woodpeckers hitting the tree and it comes to a full stop, that's pretty significant. That acceleration is very significant. But the mass of its brain is small enough that it doesn't equate to a large force. When you multiply the large acceleration times the smaller mass, you get a smaller force. If you've ever swatted a fly and he flies into a wall and lands on the kitchen table and he's sitting there, you think you got him, and a few seconds later he's walking around and then he flies off. You're like, how does that work? The acceleration he just experienced was very significant, but the mass of his body is so small, it wasn't much of a force at all. It really didn't hurt him. <laughs> so that's how that works. And the skull, which houses the woodpecker's brain, is porous, which helps absorb some of the shock. And the woodpecker has special shock-absorbing cartilage between its beak and its skull better than anything we have ever, ever developed. And then it has special eyelids. They actually close before each impact. So when it's going really, really fast, its eyelids are closing each time. And it opens up again so it can aim because if it hits it at the wrong angle, it could snap its neck and it would be dead. Um, And also, if it doesn't close its eyes just before impact, its eyes would pop right out of its head. That's how hard it's hitting that tree. It also has an extra layer of transparent eyelids, which actually thicken just before impact to assist the eyes in staying in place, and they add protection from any debris that's coming up when it's chopping the wood there. Uh, The eyes are also suspended in fluid, which assists in absorbing the shocks, and the beak has an outer covering, which absorbs much of the initial impact Plus, the lower beak is slightly longer, taking more of the impact before the upper portion is affected, which lessens the impact to the brain. Uh, Quick side note, I was watching a video by a a secular production company talking about the woodpecker, and they're obviously talking about how it evolved over millions of years. The presenter, who had been talking about how it evolved, stated that this portion, that the beak and the covering and all these, the different length of the the beaks and stuff like that, he said that this beak has been beautifully engineered. (laughs) I'm thinking, really? I I agree with that. It has been, but not in your mind. Who who engineered it? Nature didn't. Nature isn't thinking, hey, how could we make this one bird better into like a woodpecker? What should we do with the beak? No, it's not engineering anything. Um, I think there's evidence of engineering there because I think it was designed, but if you're an evolutionist, you think just Mistakes are happening in the DNA. There's no engineering going on there. It's just all fortuitous. It's just lucky. Uh, The brain is also oriented in the woodpecker vertically. Our brains are more like horizontal with kind of a half dome and the flat portion facing down. And that makes the front part of our brain smaller. So if you have an impact like a football player, a lot of that force is coming in and heading the front of the brain, which is a smaller area. And you're spreading that force out over a smaller area. So it can do a lot of damage. Um, with the woodpecker, its brain is vertical towards the back, so the flat side is facing forward, so that force gets spread out over a much larger area, lessening the impact. We're going to end with the tongue of the woodpecker. It's up to three times the length of its beak, which is pretty interesting. It can stick up to 10 inches out the end of its beak. <laughs> Where would you put something like that? You know, if you store it in the back of your throat, you'd probably choke to death. And then it stretches this tongue out into a hole that it's made where there are bugs. How would it even know there are bugs to begin with in there? But it makes a hole and there are bugs in there and it's got to reach this tongue all the way into the hole and grab a bug out. How does it get a bug on the end of its tongue? Well, it actually 
fortuitously evolved barbs on the end of its tongue to grab the bug. Well, what was it doing before it had those barbs? But not only does it have barbs, it actually glues the bug to the end of its tongue. Anybody see a problem with that? <laughs> you bring the bug into your mouth, you swallow the bug, you swallow your tongue, you choke to death, you can't evolve. <laughs> well, the bug, just fortuitously again, has an enzyme that it creates as a solvent to dissolve the glue, to loosen up the bug just before it swallows the bug. I mean, again, all that just happened by accident for no reason. How did it exist before it had the glue, before it had the barbs? You know, it's just, okay, well, it's anyone's game, but a lot of storytelling. And then specifically with the European green woodpecker, its tongue is really fascinating. So most animals and humans, um, our tongues... You know, they're sticking out by your mouth and they go, they get anchored in the back of your throat. And then you can stick your tongue out. Well, this European green woodpecker, the tongue starts in the back of its throat, but then it goes down his throat. And it goes out the back of his neck. This is all under the skin and feathers, so you don't see it. So it goes down its throat. Instead of out the beak, it goes down its throat. And then it goes out towards the back of the neck it goes up over the top of the back of his head and it comes out a hole between his eyes and then it goes into one of the nostrils and then it comes out the beak. I'll look up a picture sometime. Again, this is the European green woodpecker and, and search for its tongue. To see a picture of it, it's kind of humorous. And then also ask yourself, how did that evolve when there was just a shorter tongue like most animals have in the back of the throat and then just going out the end of the beak? Did it just slowly move over hundreds of thousands or millions of years, got longer and reversed and started going down its throat, couldn't go out the beak anymore to get anything, and could it survive with a tongue hanging down its throat, couldn't do anything, but then it keeps going around the back of its head and then finally figures a way to come out a hole between its eyes and then goes into the nostril and then comes out the beak? Uh, do we have fossils of birds that are in intermediate stages like that? No. So how does this work? To me, this is design, and it, to me, it's probably God saying, watch this. You know, and he makes the woodpecker, and just like, how are you going to explain that? And again, if your faith is strong enough, you just trust that somehow he evolved over millions of years because you don't want him to be designed because you don't like the idea of a designer. So anyway, that's just a second example of design in nature. It's one of those things that you can't design it one step at a time over hundreds of thousands or millions of years because it won't survive along the way. And what would it even look like in between? Again, think of this tongue getting longer and going the wrong direction, stretching out and then getting barbs and getting glue on the end of it. But then you have to have the enzyme that's also created in the DNA at the right time to loosen up the bug and all these things. Just like, no, you can't do it stepwise. There's so much evidence these things have been designed. And again, a biblical worldview says that God created everything and he designed creatures to reproduce after their kind. So woodpeckers can reproduce and produce other woodpeckers and birds, but they're not going to reproduce something else. Nothing drastically different. Small changes here and there, but we're also not seeing them becoming more and more complex over time. Things are actually going downhill. We covered that in previous podcasts. So got to wind down for now. What's up next? Well, it'll be Intelligent Design Part 5. We're going to look at two 
more examples, uh, really cool examples, one of them very, very practical that you will definitely relate to and you will never look at that thing the same again. It's, it's really cool. You have to wait to see what it is. That'll be Intelligent Design Part 5. So again, make sure you tune in, tell a friend. Again, please, please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you can, leave a five-star review. That helps us greatly. I appreciate you hanging in there. We finally got to some actual examples. We'll get to some more next time and we will see you then. Well, thanks for listening to this episode of the Starting Point Podcast. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, tell a friend, and please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That's the number one way to help us reach more and more people with these important and inspiring messages. To learn more about myself, Jay Siegert, and the Starting Point Project, please visit us at thestartingpointproject.com. We'll catch you next time.